when Tumblr became porn free, all of those fucking people came to Twitter and just, yes. we have to deal with them because they can't whack off anymore. John Mulaney's on tour and we went because we had tickets that we received for Christmas. Specifically, you received for Christmas. And, and I did my legendary mooch move. <laughs> but uh, so all of creation conspired to stop us from seeing this show. Yeah. There's things to discuss about the show, but uh, getting to the show was not great. I forgot my keys at my office, but here's why. I defended my dissertation proposal. It was under attack. Well, it always is. That <laughs> All of your work is literally under attack. That's how you get your doctorate is by putting your work directly under attack by a bunch of other under doctors. Fire. And and defending it. It's so, a war zone. So I did one of those milestones. Uh, so it, it was very stressful, but like I did great. I, I am at the point of my recovery where I have humility. And that is an accurate appraisal of your strengths no, and weaknesses. And I'm fucking great. You absolutely are. So I, I had a big fucking day. But you brought your keys to do it, even though I dropped you off. Yeah, which was dumb. And this this is something that pre-recovery was like, I was known for being like very smart academically, but I could not do anything. I was non-functional. Anyway, this is one thing that I still continuously do, and it's leave my keys places. Oh, yes. Often. We got a key ringer for that reason. We did. So... I left. I was hoping I left them there because we looked at our little key ringer app. And it, and it was like, I'm sorry, your keys aren't anywhere near here. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't want to take my car because it's a two hour drive. And that car, it's a four cylinder and ACD's car is a six cylinder. So we prayed. Not really. But we were hoping that we, we not really <laughs> like, we were like as if we were really praying. We were hoping <laughs> the keys were in my office and they were. Yeah, they were. Thank Christ. And so then we took Peter's car to get those pick up my car and, and turn things around. Yeah. So we're going down the highway. We're thinking about how life is one. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> so anyway, we got our motor running and we headed out on the highway. <laughs> Thinking about how life is one. And we realized how wild we were born to be. So <laughs> I'm driving on the road like a wild person, both hands on the steering wheel, a responsible rebel. <laughs> Ten and two. Ten and two. I realized that the car was uh, pulling to the right. I'm like, I wonder if there's something wrong with the car. In the next few days, we're going to have to get this checked out. And then after I made that observation, he goes, I look at Peter like this. <laughs> <laughs> like it's their fucking fault. Yeah. <laughs> and behind you, like there's a spinning, like, you know, the swirly thing. It's just like <laughs> the swirly thing. Let me explain why okay. I looked at Peter like it was their fault. Okay. Because Peter is bad at driving. Yeah. Yeah. Peter's bad at driving. The other day they parked my car in the parking lot that we park in every single day. 
and and just ran the front part straight over the curb. Yeah. And I again look at them like, "You're gonna fuck up my car," and they go, "Sorry." Sorry, I just <laughs> got my motor running. It's heading out on the highway, which I figured that life kind of is. So I have a flat tire. <laughs> yeah, we get out. Look, it's the front passenger side. So I go in the back and I get the little shitty jack. Shitty. It's important to know that is the default jack. Get the spare tire out. I go and I jack up the car. Car's off the ground. I start taking the the wheel off, and you know what happens? The shitty default jack bends as I am removing bolts. Yeah, it's like the, we're already at the point where you're like done with it. If I had maybe five more minutes, I'm not even joking, like five more minutes with that fucking car in the air before the goddamn thing bent, I would have had the other tire on it. But anyway, it bent. I start trying to figure out how to get the damn thing out from under the car. And we faff around with that for a while. And the highway patrol shows up. They're like, what's going on over here? I got some kind of a problem. (laughs) And we're like, yes, the tire is broken. I have a six ton jack. Give me a moment. Okay. To to be very. He was actually awesome. I just. Yeah. To be very clear. I have no idea why Peter is. Well, representing this person as like and just saying like well hello there i've got a jack let me do this in five seconds for you it it was like that well it was more me shit talking the universe than it was me shit talking this man because i had put like a shit like my body aches the next day from doing this shit and uh, this guy, he comes in with his six-pound jack. He's like, doop a doop a doop a doop a Oh, actually, Peter you know. I was feeling jack envy. I was. I, I did have some serious jack envy. I'm not satisfied with the default one. Let's just say. It sucks. I hate that fucking thing. And, you know, it's not the first one that's fucking bent on me. As I was setting up the jack, I was like, I'm going to be really careful to put this thing in the right spot and put it up because I've had these fucking things bend on me before. And sure enough, even though I did it carefully and correctly, the fucking thing did it. So Peter went to the a show all greasy and whatnot. Yeah, I was greasy. I had like uh, shit all over my hands. I had cuts all over my hands, too. Yeah, and a puppy. Looked like a huge badass. Just covered in dirt. And blood. Mm-hmm. But we we uh we made it. We were a little late, but really it was very ideal because we saw about 15, 20, 20 minutes of the real opener. Yeah. And he said, You guys ready for John Mulaney? And Johnny Mulaney immediately he came out. So he came out in an ill-fitting suit, which is odd for him. He did, yeah. <laughs> Normally I assume tailored suits uh, comes out in in like a Bernie Sanders suit. <laughs> it was really fucking funny, though. It was. But I I don't think I, I had like a full, like hearty laugh the whole time. It was all the hilarious jokes. I, I mean, most of it w- was completely recovery related. And by that, I mean like relapse like the end of using career related even the shit that's not directly about that is about that like the al pacino thing 
yeah. which is more about Al Pacino, but also about the context that he's in there. Yeah. I mean, w- one of the funniest bits was him talking about like the intervention that oh my god all of his celebrity friends had with him. It was fucking hilarious, but it was also just like oh my god, like this is this is fucking horrible. One of them was about an interview that he did that he couldn't remember. That that was the last bit, and that like I couldn't I couldn't handle that because there's so many things like that are like that for myself that the just the the shame that is behind all of that is just like inexpressibly horrifying. I will say he said some truly amazing things he in that did. interview though. No, he did. Uh, but it's just the uh, it, it's hard. Well, it's also just very strange to like even if he's able to like do that as a professional comedian and it's like healing for him, which it might be. Yeah. Um whatever. Um it's very odd to have like a place that you know is full of non-alcoholics and non-addicts to like laugh hysterically about something that you know is like one of the most painful, shameful and like guilt-ridden moments of somebody's life where they're like it is indescribable <laughs> to to explain the emotions that you are in in your last phase of addiction, just knowing that that is that at least to some degree that that's behind every addict and alcoholic story. Like that's not me projecting or whatever that that's, you don't get into recovery without that because it's too hard. Hmm. And so knowing that it's just like, and then like thousands of people think it's like the funniest thing in the world. Uh, To be fair, it's really fucking funny. It was, it was, but like, They don't understand what they're laughing at. Yeah. I don't even fully understand. I mean, I'm adjacent to you and therefore understand more of what you have gone through. But still. So, yeah. Um, Tighten your buttholes. It's time for Pact. This is ACD. uh, That's Ms. Astronaut Cowboy Doctor is what that stands for. My name's Peter. The P in my name, the first letter in Peter and... Astronaut Cowboy Doctor, ACD. Uh, you take those letters, P-A-C-D, and it makes the word packed, although it's spelled a little differently, which seems to throw some people. That's fine. It's fine. You pack all those letters together, and then you're packed in the past tense, P-A-C-D. So watch us, listen to us every week, stream with us. We record these episodes live every Sunday. Thanks so much for tuning in. So last week we talked about feminism and how dumb it is. <laughs> That's not the way we're No. I, so last week we talked about how the Soviets hated feminism. Nope. Let's, <laughs> I wish I had a whistle. <laughs> I could blow it every time. you. So last week feminism proved itself to be superfluous. Last week, we began the social basis of the woman question by Alexander Kollontai, which begins to form around the conclusion that the struggle of proletarian women cannot be encapsulated in bourgeois feminism. And that feminism is bourgeois. Yes, which will later form to the conclusion that feminism is a superfluous 
cause that outside of the general question, as Colente calls it, or the, the general social question that is the general class struggle, cannot exist as its own independent entity. Um, so even to attain the goals that it purports to attain, to exist as a separate movement that is feminism outside of something that's just integrated and underpinning the general class struggle renders it automatically unsuccessful. So not only superfluous, but ineffective in achieving the aims that it would otherwise achieve being subsumed and integrated into a communist approach. The idea put forward in part one was primarily that there isn't a universal struggle between all women because women exists in different classes. The idea of an ideological separate feminist movement that unites women across classes is impossible because of the material differences and struggle that they have. The interests of proletarian women are simply different than the interests of bourgeois women. To own, if you have that relationship to the means of production, you do not have the same struggle as a woman in the proletariat. Further, uh, the women in the proletariat ultimately are the ones who do the struggle, plow the way, sort of tread the path ahead of the bourgeois feminists who they end up walking gingerly and enjoying as they reap the benefits of their new professional jobs. Mm -hmm. Basically, um, it's based as hell. Kalantai was appointed the commissar of the social good in the USSR when it became the USSR in 1917, a personally appointed by Lenin, a girl boss in the most real sense of the word. Uh, we're going to take a quick break to promote my new documentary. It's called Cancel Culture, Mob Justice or a Society of Subscriptions, and it will be premiering on June 5th at youtube.com slash very important documentaries. Regarded as a culture war issue of liberal versus conservative, left versus right, few see cancel culture as a logical, though undesirable, conclusion of our prevailing ideology and economic relationships. This documentary film aims to change that, attempting to draw material distinctions that explain the phenomenon as intrinsically linked to power in a capitalist society while eschewing the team sports of other explanations. It, there's a premiere. We're going to be doing a call-in episode for comments and questions. Calling in, not calling out. Yeah, not We're calling, calling out. Calling in. We're calling in, which is totally different than calling out. Which it is, is totally not the different same. than canceling. Yes. Calling out, fandom, calling in, psychology, <laughs> canceling, black. You'll have to watch the doc because I don't. Vox actually said that canceling is a product of black culture. An actual real outlet said that, but you'll have to watch the doc to totally understand what's going on. Cancel culture. Mob justice or a society of subscriptions with the foreword by Robin D'Angelo. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> Edited for real disease by Miss Astronaut Cowboy yes. Doctor, which is not credited on the copy of the book. These are all old. You are credited in them now, though. 
premiere of Cancel Culture, Mob Justice, or a Society of Subscriptions, June 5th, 8 p.m., youtube.com slash very important documentaries, and then a call-in show of Pact. We better see you all there. Let's get back to Pact. I'll, I'll reiterate the last paragraph that we read. Sounds good. For what reason, then, should the woman worker seek a union with the bourgeois feminists? Who, in actual fact, would stand to gain in the event of such an alliance? Certainly not the woman worker. She is her own savior. Her future is in her own hands. The working woman guards her class interests and is not deceived by great speeches about the world all women share. The working woman must not and does not forget that while the aim of bourgeois women is to secure their own welfare in the framework of a society antagonistic to us, our aim is to build, in place of the old, outdated world, a bright temple of universal labor, comradely solidarity, and joyful freedom. Completely different interests. Yes. No class collaboration possible th that advocates for the proletarian woman. And in truth, Kalantai more or less puts forward a paradigm that functions as a critique of any identity-based separate quote-unquote struggle because for the most part, a lot of identitarian struggle does it does the exact same thing that feminism purports to do, which is unite all people of that identity while totally ignoring class lines. So, so now we move on to another question wherein she applies this same idea of having diametrically opposed interests between proletarian and bourgeois women and thus being unable to have a united feminist movement that supersedes that and is external to that of the general class struggle. She applies this to the family and marriage and in context of those relationships within a capitalist society. Important to note, she is more or less not necessarily expanding the analysis of Engels, the origin of the family, private property in the state. But in terms of language, she, I think, grounds what she's talking about a little bit more than Engels does. Mm -hmm. I think she speaks in more plain language. I would say that this is pre-reading for that, yeah. because I think that this sort of states a lot of the points in that book in plainer language. And then going on to that book may end up, I think, being easier to understand. Marriage and the problem of the family. Let us turn our attention to another aspect of the woman question. The question of the family. The importance that the solution of this urgent and complex question has for the genuine emancipation of women is well known. The struggle for political rights, the right to receive doctorates and other academic degrees, and for equal pay for equal work is not the full sum of the fight for equality. To become really free, a woman has to throw off the heavy chains of the current forms of the family, which are outmoded and oppressive. For women, the solution of the family question is no less important than the achievement of political equality and economic independence. So not separating this, but, but acknowledging this as an issue to be talked about in its own right. Something that a woman seeking liberation might be curious about. Mm-hmm. In the family of today, the structure of which is confirmed by custom and law, woman is oppressed not only as a person but as a wife and mother. 
In most of the countries of the civilized world, the civil code places women in a greater or lesser dependence on her husband and awards the husband not only the right to dispose of her property, but also the right of moral and physical dominance over her. So the women are seen as in an inferior position as a wife, a parent, or a spouse, a parent uh, existing in the family unit. Where the official and legal servitude of women ends, the force we call public opinion begins. This public opinion is created and supported by the bourgeoisie with the aim of preserving the sacred institution of property. Which goes back to the German ideology with Marx, where he talks about how the prevailing ideology of society is that of the bourgeoisie. It is enforced and also just necessitated by the economic relations to keep people not revolutionary. (laughs) Yeah. The hypocrisy of double morality is another one. Bourgeois society crushes woman with its savage economic vice, paying for her labor at a very low rate. The woman is deprived of the citizen's right to raise her voice in defense of her interests. Instead, she is given only the gracious alternative of the bondage of marriage or the embraces of prostitution, a trade despised and persecuted in public, but encouraged and supported in secret. We've had a little bit of an inversion of that uh, in the sex work is work. Well, now it's it's become commodified in a 21st century neoliberal market. Well, exactly. Ostensibly, it's about supporting exploited workers. However, it's really about supporting the industry that exploits them more than it is about that. The ideology of just blindly supporting sex workers is not actually that. It's centering the issue upon the exploited workers and distracts people from the fact that there is an industry exploiting them. Because, duh, as as a communist, as a Marxist, you support any kind of worker, whether they're a wage slave or whether they're a sex worker. Um, now, there are a few different uh, types of sex worker as well. There's the more human trafficking-oriented type of sex worker, and then there's the only a fans sex worker, which... There's a little bit of disparity between those two types of sex workers experience. I mean, there's a few of them that certainly have established a place in which that is their job. They buy houses and they talk about how glorious it is to sell pictures of their ass. And Um, then, yeah, and then convince other people that that's a viable career path. Which the average person on OnlyFans who makes money makes less than one hundred and ninety dollars a month. But as they use the successful sex workers, successful OnlyFans personalities to sell the industry, um, people more or less ignore the more human trafficking oriented type sex worker, which still is persecuted in public and supported in secret. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit more complex of a situation. Colin Ty couldn't have predicted OnlyFans. (laughs) Well, it's just like with... Marx and Lenin and their figures, their brains would explode if they saw the numbers now. Yeah. They're, they're cute little they're cute little charts. Yeah. Feminism. All right. Is it necessary to emphasize the dark sides of contemporary married life and the sufferings women experience in connection with their position in the present family structure? So much has already been written and said on this subject. 
Literature is full of depressing pictures of the snares of married and family life. How many psychological dramas are enacted? How many lives are crippled? Here, it is only important for us to note that the modern family structure, to a lesser or greater extent, oppresses women of all classes and all layers of the population. Customs and traditions persecute the young mother, whatever the stratum of the population to which she belongs. The laws place bourgeois women, proletarian women, and peasant women all under the guardianship of their husbands. So across classes, she's saying here that within the familial unit and within the marriage, women are comparatively oppressed to their husbands. But have we not discovered at last that aspect of the woman question over which women of all classes can unite? Can they not struggle jointly against the conditions oppressing them? Is it not possible that the grief and suffering which women share in this instance will soften the clause of class antagonism and provide common aspirations and common action for the women of different camps? Might it not be that on the basis of common desires and aims, cooperation between the bourgeois women and the proletarian women may become a possibility? The feminists are struggling for freer forms of marriage and the right to maternity. They're raising their voices in defense of the prostitute, the human being persecuted by all. See how rich the feminist literature is in the search for new forms of relationships and enthusiastic demands for the moral equality of the sexes? Is it not true that while in the sphere of economic liberation, the bourgeois women lag behind the many million strong army of the proletarian women who are pioneering the way for the new woman? In the fight for the solution of the family question, the laurels go to the feminists. I think it's worth noting that there's some talk here about the right to maternity, which is, again, a sort of inverse of the right to choose. Here, what's being talked about is the right to become a mother without having to enter into a coercive economic situation. And, and now we're in a situation in which it's not so much marriage that's preventing a person from having a child anymore, but rather money. Right. And, and in this case, it's not marriage that's preventing a woman from having a child, but it's marriage in its institutionalized form that is making maternity something that is necessarily within the context of a coercive relationship with a man with whom you share unequal power. Here in Russia, women of the middle bourgeoisie, the army of independent wage earners thrown on the labor market during the 1860s, have long since settled in practice many of the confused aspects of the marriage question. They've courageously replaced the consolidated family of the traditional church marriage with more elastic types of relationship that meet the needs of that social layer. But the subjective solution of this question by individual women does not change the situation and does not relieve the overall gloomy picture of family life. If any force is destroying the modern form of family, it is not the titanic efforts of separate and stronger individuals, but the inanimate and mighty forces of production, which are uncompromisingly budding life on new foundations. Essentially, the family doesn't change because people decide it should. The family changes because economic relations prompt people to live in different ways. For instance, let's say you have a necessity to have a job that's two hours away from your family. That more or less is going to change the condition in which you interact with your family. Are you going to move your family? Are you going to commute two fucking hours to and from work every day? Like these are the types of things that change familiar relations. These necessitate different arrangements. 
These things make people make different decisions, even if they don't want to. This is how society develops. I mean, advocacy has a place here, but it's not advocating for people to change the way they do something personally. The heroic struggle of individual young women of the bourgeois world who fling down the gauntlet and demand society the right to dare to love without orders and without chains ought to serve as an example for all women languishing in family chains. This is what is preached by the more emancipated feminists abroad and our progressive equal writers at home. The marriage question, in other words, is solved in their view without reference to the external situation. It is solved independently of changes in the economic structure of society. The isolated, heroic efforts of individuals is enough. Let a woman simply dare, and the problem of marriage is solved. <laughs> That's so fucking funny. Essentially, she's... Get a little sassy. Yeah. She is also sounds familiar. She's comically articulating uh, the bourgeois view of how progress happens. Right. And to good effect, I think that that's genuinely funny. And it does sound like something that you and I have been saying for a very long time now. No, she's she's just saying your individual actions goes like this. Yeah. Holy shit. Rosie the Riveter's got a goddamn bandana on a bandana with coveralls. Wow. Wow. But less heroic women shake their heads in distrust. It is all very well for the heroines of novels, blessed by the prudent author with great independence, unselfish friends, and extraordinary qualities of charm to throw down the gauntlet. Again, still employing humor to great effect. All of the things that your heroic woman in fiction do is the result of your author saying, she should do that. That'd be good in the story. Yeah. And it's also why certain authors seem more realistic than others. Like when somebody says, oh, this book feels real. You want to know why? Because that author is not just arbitrarily doing that shit. They're doing things along uh, what people would expect to be the actual material conditions of real life. They say, oh, when I read this, it feels like reality. Like that would actually happen. When somebody says that, they're talking about an author who is actually adhering to history and the material conditions of society when they make their characters do things. Mm -hmm. Here, she's talking about how feminist authors don't do that. <laughs> but what about those who have no capital, insufficient wages, no friends, and little charm? I love that. What about us duds? <laughs> what about ugly bitches? <laughs> Colin Ty said, what about ugly bitches? Colin Ty said, think about the uggos, too. Come on. What about us ugly bitches? And the question of maternity preys on the mind of the woman who strives for freedom. Is free love possible? Can it be realized as a common phenomenon, as the generally accepted norm, rather than the individual exception? given the economic structure of our society? Is it possible to ignore the element of private property in contemporary marriage? Is it possible in an individualistic world to ignore the formal marriage contract without damaging the interests of women? For the marital contract is the only guarantee that all the difficulties of maternity will not fall on the woman alone. 
Will not that which once happened to the male worker now happen to the woman? The removal of guild regulations without the establishment of new rules governing the conduct of the masters give capital absolute power over the workers. The tempting slogan, freedom of contract for labor and capital, became a means for the naked exploitation of labor by capital. Which, by the way, we have some dumb slogans now, but wow. Talking about the duds. Yeah. That's uh freedom of contract for labor and capital. Wow. Yeah, that that doesn't really even ring. No. Like I get why abolish the family is a thing. Yeah, I get why that kind of makes everyone people are like, but- "Ooh, that sounds like something." Yeah, our buttholes get fired up on that, but freedom of contract for labor and capital. No. No. My butthole is unaffected. No, my butthole's also unaffected. And and just for a little clarification, I'm going to pass it on to you because that's done now. Mm -hmm. This is, again, getting into ideas of the origin of the family private property in the state, which is one of the places where abolish the family derives its ideas from. It's important to understand, however, that abolish the family isn't even really the slogan. There's a German word um, that I can't pronounce that exists in the place of the word abolish. And what it really means is sublate the family. Yes. It it doesn't mean that families can't and shouldn't exist. It means that they won't exist in a coercive context of capitalism, which should be very easy to understand. Yeah. When people are like, the family shouldn't exist. There shouldn't be moms and dads. A village should be raising a child. Everybody, everybody should be raising a child. And there shouldn't be fucking teachers. And there shouldn't be schools. And there shouldn't. No, shut the fuck up. That is not how it works. Like, I'm sorry, a kid comes out of a person and a person cares about that kid. Yeah, and we already are increasingly collectively raising kids. Well, yeah, that's what we said in another. I don't think it was on a podcast, but we do communally raise kids already. Increasingly. Some of that uh, communal raising of children is actually happening due to economic coercion. Yeah. Like people have to have a job. So another person is brought in to help raise the kid. Right. Exactly. So let's not just sit here and say that that's automatically a great situation. Same goes with free love and... OnlyFans, prostitution, and all of these things. Like, there's a version of it that you can get that sounds like the slogan that isn't good. Also, yeah, and and to clarify, when Colin Ty's talking about free love, it kind of has a broad range of meanings. Um, But some of them even touch on how we think about that today or like the hippie to be free love. Yeah. But what she's mostly seeming to talk about it is to be in a loving romantic relationship without being coerced into the confines of marriage. Yeah. But that can be applied to how hippies and polyamorous people talk about free love today. Before we go any further, let's take a quick break to remind people uh, that we have a Patreon and that is how we are funded. We're not funded uh, by any NGOs. We're not funded by some content house like Nebula, whose parent company, CuriosityStream, has had a USAID member on its board since its founding. Um, no, we actually uh, work 
for our money outside of the podcast. So if you want to support the podcast, if you want to help us in our sort of long game aspirations with this thing, please become a patron at patreon.com slash packed pod. That's P-A-C-D-P-O-D. Also, when you're a patron, you get access to things like we're in the process of gathering enough people to make it worth it to send out free stickers and promotional cards. Patrons are accomplices to the crimes that we are committing. <laughs> but patrons are a huge help. They help further our aims, our goals. We want to spread. We want to become bigger. We want people to hear this stuff. You guys rule. We rely on you. We need you not only to become patrons, but also to spread the word. If you can't chip in two bucks to our Patreon, just tell a friend. Make them listen to us. Force them. Don't don't actually force. Like that would be weird. And I don't think that they would like the podcast if that was the way that that happened. Like, don't force people to watch our podcast. No forcing. I already talked about that in another episode. Yeah. I think if you pin somebody against the wall and say, Hey, listen, a pact, they would probably go, Ooh, I don't like pact. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, that's patreon.com slash pact pod. Again, Thanks a ton. And let's get back to Pact. Free love introduced consistently into contemporary class society. Instead of freeing woman from the hardships of family life, would surely shoulder her with a new burden. The task of caring alone and unaided for her children. So again, free love without the coercive forces of marriage or, or being in an institutionalized nuclear family unit. They wouldn't have called it the nuclear family, but that's the term that I am going to use. The concept of that free love and capitalism doesn't work because it just leaves women alone, unaided to take on these responsibilities mm-hmm. um, in isolation, which is arguably even worse than being in the context of the financial support that marriage within the capitalist framework affords her even though she's in a submissive oppressed role within that familiar unit hence economic coercion forcing different modes in people's lives eats only a whole number of fundamental reforms in the fear of social relations reforms transposing obligations from the family to society and the state could create a situation where the principle of free love might to some extent be fulfilled. But can we seriously expect the modern class state, however democratic it may be, to take upon itself the duties towards mothers and children, which at present are undertaken by that individualistic unit, the modern family? So can we expect a state in the context of capitalism to propagate reforms that support uh, the woman engaging in a free love romantic relationship. Obviously, we yeah. cannot. Of course not. The only thing we can rely on is the state ensuring that the current economic mode can go on. Right. And this this applies directly to now. However democratic it may be, however many fucking AOCs and Bernie Sanders are in Congress. No, it's not going to do that. Only the fundamental transformation of all productive relations could create the social prerequisites to protect women from the negative aspects of free love. 
Are we not aware of the depravity and abnormalities that in present conditions are anxious to pass themselves off under this convenient label? Consider all those gentlemen owning and administering industrial enterprises who force women among their workforce and clerical staff to satisfy their sexual whims, using the threat of dismissal to achieve their ends. Are they not in their own way practicing free love? So she's she's talking about free love in a way that is capitalizing on a label of being in a romantic or sexual relationship that's outside of the confines of marriage um, and conveniently utilizing those labels to capitalize on, on sexual inequality, I guess, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in the same way that we see that taking place today. Mm -hmm. Free love as it's manifest in the polycule yeah the polycule is an ideology whatever polyamory is a category of relationship and the polycule is an ideology all those masters of the house who rape their servants and throw them out pregnant onto the street are they not adhering to the formula of free love so again men with economic power abusing the concept of free love to further oppress women that's not what polyamory is yeah, I've never been in that situation and it totally didn't make me an alcoholic. Anyways, <laughs> but we are not talking that kind of freedom, object the advocates of free marriage. On the contrary, we demand the acceptance of a single morality, equally binding for both sexes. So women and men held to the same sexual or romantic standards. We oppose the sexual license that is current and view as moral only the free union that is based on true love. But my dear friends, do you not think that your ideal of free marriage when practiced in the present conditions of present society might produce results that differ little from the distorted practice of sexual freedom? Only when women are relieved of all those material burdens which at the present time created dual dependence on capital and the husband can the principle of free love be implemented without bringing new grief for women in its wake. As women go out to work and achieve economic independence, certain possibilities for free love appear, particularly for the better paid women of the intelligentsia. But the dependence of women on capital remains, and this dependence increases as more and more proletarian women sell their labor. Is the slogan free love capable of improving the sad existence of these women who earn only just enough to keep themselves alive? In any way, is not free love already practiced among the working classes and practiced so widely that the bourgeoisie has on more than one occasion raised the alarm and campaigned against the depravity and immorality of the proletariat? It should be noted that when the feminists enthuse about the new forms of cohabitation outside of marriage that should be considered by the emancipated bourgeois woman, they speak of free love. But when the working class is under discussion, these relationships are scornfully referred to as disorderly sexual intercourse. This sums up their attitude. So different moral standards, not only between men and women, but between bourgeois women and proletarian women. And even despite those ideological differences in judgment even above and beyond that the free love that is practiced among those proletarian women is still taking place in the context of the economic coercion that exists for working women who again are making just enough to keep themselves alive what else is apparent right here is the dynamic we can see liberals engage in all the time their professed ideals only matter for them yes 
if you're proletariat, you're rowdy, you're uncouth, you're unlearned, uh, you don't know the anything, and therefore your actions, they aren't enlightened. Right. And therefore, even if you do something that the bourgeois feminist advocates you should be able to do, oftentimes it's unseemly in their in their mind. And that is true right now. And not just, again, in feminism, in basically anything. Like whenever, for instance, I say, I am non-binary, that's met with some shit. Let me tell you that. I'm still transphobic. I'm still a racist. I'm still a fascist. Only um, keffels can be trans. Yeah, only keffels can be trans. Only people who dress ridiculously and spew liberal bullshit can be trans. Apparently, if your eyebrows do not resemble that of Hitler's mustache, you are not trans. But for proletarian women, at the present time, all relationships, whether sanctified by the church or not, are equally harsh in their consequences. So it doesn't matter if you're in the coercive realm of marriage. You're still in a coercive relationship. Mm-hmm. The crux of the family and marriage problem lies for the proletarian wife and mother, not in the question of the sacred or secular external form, but in the attendant social and economic conditions which define the complicated obligations of the working class woman. Of course, it matters to her, too, whether her husband has the right to dispose of her earnings, whether he has the right by law to force her to live with him when she does not want to, whether the husband can forcibly take away her children, etc. However, it is not such paragraphs of the civic code that determine the position of the woman in the family, nor is it these paragraphs which make for the confusion and complexity of the family problem. The question of relationships would cease to be such a painful one for the majority of women only if society relieved women of all those petty household cares which are at present unavoidable, given the existence of individual scattered domestic economies, took over responsibility for the younger generation, protected maternity, and gave the mother to the child for at least the first months after birth. In opposing the legal and sacred church marriage contract, the feminists are fighting a fetish. The proletarian women, on the other hand, are waging a war against the factors that are behind the modern form of marriage and family. So again, the feminists, the bourgeois feminists, are fighting an ideological aesthetic that doesn't alter the material conditions of what women in the proletariat are facing. Um, taking down the institution of marriage and advocating for free love, for example, without uh, changing those underlying economic dynamics and relationships, the, the productive relationships of society, um, they don't target or dismantle the mechanisms that underpin the oppressive aspects of the modern form of marriage and family, which proletarian women advocate against. In striving to change fundamentally the conditions of life, they know that they are also helping to reform relationships between the sexes. Here we have the main difference between the bourgeois and proletarian approach to the difficult problem of the family. Proletarian women wanting to change the productive economic forces of society because that is the crux of the oppressive relationship of the modern family. And bourgeois feminists focusing on the ideological aesthetic of daring uh, to defy the family. The feminists and the social reformers from the camp of the bourgeoisie, naively believing in the possibility of creating new forms of family and new types of marital relations against the dismal background of contemporary class society, tie themselves in knots in their search for these new forms. 
I don't know if you've seen people attempt to come up with new types of relationships publicly online. Going back to Tumblr, like the incentive was literally to come up with a thing that other people haven't come up with, whether it's a relationship, whether it's uh, an orientation, whether it's an identity. The incentive was literally to be completely unique in some way that would attract attention. And to some extent, that is what Twitter is like now as well. Absolutely. When Tumblr became porn free, all of those fucking people came to Twitter and just, we have to deal with them because they can't whack off anymore. If life itself has not yet produced these forms, it is necessary, they seem to imagine, to think them up, whatever the cost, at (laughs) Tumblr.com. There must, they believe, be modern forms of sexual relationship which are capable of solving the complex family problem under the present social system. And the ideologists of the bourgeois world, the journalists, writers, and prominent woman fighters for emancipation, one after the other, put forward their family panacea, their new family formula. Which, ever relevant today. That's what the polycule is. Your sex is not revolutionary. Oh, no. Not that that essay is full of perfect shit either, but... Yeah. Anyway, how utopian these marriage formulas sound. How feeble these palliatives when considered in the light of the gloomy reality of our modern family structure. Before these formulas of free relationships and free love can become a practice, it is above all necessary that a fundamental reform of all social relationships between people take place. Furthermore, the moral and sexual norms and the whole psychology of mankind would have to undergo a thorough evolution. Is the contemporary person psychologically able to cope with free love? I I think Alexandra got hurt by (laughs) by some... Some man claiming to be polyamorous. What about the jealousy that eats even the best human souls and the deeply rooted sense of property that demands the possession not only of the body, but also of the soul of another and the inability to have proper respect for the individuality of another, the habit of either subordinating oneself to the loved one or of subordinating the loved one to oneself and the bitter and desperate feeling of desertion of limitless loneliness, which is experienced when the loved ceases to love and leaves. Where can the lonely person who is an individualist to the very core of his being find solace? So, yeah, I mean, she's talking about like the transactional relationships for which capitalism creates a context. She's talking about dating apps. Yeah, yeah. She, she's talking about the alienation that is inherent uh, to free love relationships um, in capitalism. Even in not free love relationships and capitalism. Like why people like to differentiate between true love and like love marriages and convenience and all of those things is because there's, there's a clear difference between people who, despite the system do find each other in some way Mm -hmm. and people who, you know, for whatever reason, think this is, this is the path they have to take or that this is the best they're going to do or whatever. The collective with its joys and disappointments and aspirations is the best outlet for the emotional and intellectual energies of the individual. But is modern man capable of working with this collective in such a way as to feel the mutually interacting influences? Is the life of the collective really capable at present of replacing the individual's petty personal joys without the unique 
one and only twin soul, even the socialist, the collectivist, is quite alone in the present antagonistic world. Only in the working class do we catch the pale glimpse of the future, of more harmonious and more social relations between people. The family problem is as complex and many-faceted as life itself. Our social system is incapable of solving it. Um, it's important to understand, uh, because we're not going to complete this section in this episode, it's important to understand that she doesn't actually put forward an answer to what yeah. that relationship looks like, to if it's possible for humans not to have those things, because it is ultimately utopian yeah. to do so. I was just going to say, because she's not fucking utopian. But it's important to understand that because she does say things that sound very much like she's kind of putting forward a final vision, and that's not really what she's doing. Right. And the thing where she basically reveals that she's not doing that we're not reading quite yet that's next week other marriage formulas have been put forward several progressive women and social thinkers regard the marriage union only as a method of producing progeny marriage in itself they hold does not have any special value for women motherhood is her purpose her sacred aim her task in life Thanks to such inspired advocates as Ruth Bray and Ellen Key, the bourgeois ideal that recognizes women as a female rather than a person has acquired a special halo of progressiveness. That is a sarcastic sentence, keep in mind. She's basically describing a woke Ouroboros here. It's like we said last week, she's way before her time, but, also, but, but yeah. she's exactly right on time. And the problem is that the exact same ideological issues have uh, been reinforced intensified and further highlighted in their contradictions mm -hmm. uh, within the stage of imperialism at this time. Especially highlighted in their contradictions as a lot of the time, the problem put forward here uh, while the relationship doesn't change, they build up the opposite of the problem as progressive or um, as liberation and profit off of that instead. Right. Foreign literature is seized upon the slogan put forward by these advanced women with enthusiasm. And even here in Russia, in the period before the political storm of 1905, before social values came in for revision, the question of maternity had attracted the attention of the daily press. The slogan, the right to maternity, cannot help producing lively response in the broadest circles of the female population. Thus, despite the fact that all suggestions of the feminists in this connection were of the utopian variety, the problem was too important and topical not to attract women. The right to maternity is the kind of question that touches not only women from the bourgeois class, but also, to an even greater extent, proletarian women as well. The right to be a mother, these are golden words that go straight to any woman's heart and force that heart to beat faster. The right to feed one's own child with one's own milk and to attend to the first signs of its awakened consciousness. The right to care for its tiny body and shield its tender soul from the thorns and sufferings of the first steps of life. What mother would not support these demands? It's true, though. It really pulls at your heartstrings. It does. It's also a good question to answer next week. Mm -hmm. Before we go... Remember that cancel culture, mob justice, or a society of subscriptions, the new very important documentary premieres June 5th, and we'll be doing a call-in show afterwards, so we better be seeing you for that. The trailer is out now if you're interested, youtube.com slash very important documentaries. 
Thanks very much for listening, everybody. We'll wrap up Alexandra Kollontai's The Social Basis of the Woman Question next week. Take that, feminism. And that's it for Packed. Thanks again for watching or listening. I'm Peter. This is Miss Astronaut Cowboy Doctor. To help us out, click like, follow, subscribe, join our Discord, leave us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To support us, become a patron at patreon.com slash packpod. That's P-A-C-D-P-O-D. Thanks so much. Come back next week.